So welcome to Plodcast, episode 96. Great to have you here. Thank you for tuning in or whatever it is you do to get this stuff uh, uh, streaming on your device. So I want to talk a little bit about what we think about tariffs. We are currently un, uh, uh, enjoying the administration of a president who does not um, shrink from uh, the language of tariffs. He call, he, say, he thinks that tariffs are good, that trade wars are great, that this is the sort of this is the sort of thing we ought to be um, doing more of. And so I want to ask, what do we think of tariffs? Now, I, I would like us to begin this discussion at the outset with a distinction. Um, we have to distinguish the economic effect of tariffs simply as an additional uh, tax or a price. In that case, uh, tariffs do what uh, all taxes do, which is they raise the price of an item. And all, whenever the, uh, whenever the price of an item is raised, that price is passed on by the seller to the consumer. So whoever is buying the product is paying the tariff. So when we uh, levy a tariff on Chinese goods, the Chinese don't pay the tax. They don't, they don't pay the tariff the American consumer of this item manufactured in China, the American consumer is the one who pays the tariff. So that is if the item is bought. The other thing that happens is if uh, the price is raised at a certain point, that, that price increase is going to limit demand for that product. So the American consumer only pays the tariff. Let's say, so let's say President uh, Trump levies a 25% tariff on Chinese-made widgets, okay? And let's say 100 Americans, before the tariff, 100 Americans bought the widget. And after the tariff is applied and the price of the widget increases by 25% and 50 Americans buy the widget afterwards, then the tariff is paid by those 50 Americans. The tax is paid by the Americans, not the Chinese. But that's only on the goods sold. The Chinese pay the tariff in the 50 uh, lost sales. I'm just If I'm uh, sketching this out on a blackboard, I would say pre-tariff, um, the Americans got Chinese-made widgets at a low, low price. After the tariff, the remaining customers half of them got the Chinese-made widget at an increased cost, and they paid, the, they paid the tariff that was levied. The Chinese paid a price, but they didn't pay the tariff. They didn't pay the tariff. What they paid was the loss of revenue from uh, goods that were not um, successfully sold into the United States. So the reason... Um, if, if the president threatens the Chinese widget industry and he says, hey, I'm going to raise tariffs on you guys, the Chinese widget manu- manufacturers don't respond with, ha ha, you, you stupid person, you. Don't you know that the consumer is the one who pays the tariff? Well, yes, the consumer is the one who pays the tariff if it actually gets to a sale. 
but the widget manufacturer pays a price. Okay, now that leads us to the second aspect of this, and I'm just I'm just describing here. I'm not cheerleading. I don't have my pom poms out. I'm just describing what's going on. Um, when uh, the when the president threatens to apply a 25 percent tariff, and the Chinese go ah, you know what are you doing? They're doing that with an eye on the decreased sales. They're not concerned about the sales that are completed where the customer pays the tariff. They're not concerned about that. They, they don't mind the uh, Americans paying a higher price for their product so long as they continue to buy them. What they're concerned about is the, the demand for their product may go way, way down. So, and that leads to the other thing where, the, where we have to keep an eye on what the president is actually doing. He's not levying tariffs because tariffs are fun. He's not levying tariffs because tariffs are the best way to make everybody rich. He's levying tariffs because the Chinese don't want him to levy tariffs. And he is trying to get concessions from them. In other words, he's not levying tariffs. He's threatening to levy tariffs. And he's threatening to levy tariffs in order to get concessions. So let's say, uh, and and I'm not claiming to be inside the president's head on any of this. I'm just saying that we have to make uh, we have to make basic distinctions. Suppose a president threatens monster tariffs, and he scares the people he's negotiating with, and scares them such that they agree to a free trade tariff free zone where we don't apply tariffs to their stuff, they don't apply tariffs to our stuff, they sell in our country, we sell in their country, and the end result is free markets as far as the eye can see. Well, is it conceivable that a threat of tariffs might lead to free markets? Now, of course, a threat of tariffs uh, could also lead to counter tariffs and, and then you're off into a trade war. It might, you, and then everybody, uh, everybody loses. If if the prices of everything goes up, no matter who you are, then it's hard to see how anybody comes out of that a winner, right? But if you have tariffs that are uh, simply threatened but are never applied, or never applied for more than a few weeks, and the end result of the threatened tariffs is an increase in free trade, then it seems to me that free traders like myself, I'm I'm in favor of um, border, you know, uh, sale of merchandise across borders that should be. I, I think the sale of merchandise, lawful merchandise, not talking about cocaine, but widgets, the sale of widgets across borders, ought to be uh, as frictionless as possible. So if that's the, the result we desire, we shouldn't complain when we get it. So, as we march onward through episode 96 of our podcast, we come to my book review uh, section. And the book I want to review uh, this time is uh, one of Peter Lightheart's best books, I, I believe. And it's not one of his better known books. It's a small book, and I commend it to you. It's just a wonderful, wonderful book. And the book is called From Silence to Song. From Silence to Song. 
And uh, what this book is about, basically, is the tabernacle of David. You remember that God had the Jews build a tabernacle in the wilderness, which was the proto-temple. The tabernacle in the wilderness uh, served, uh, had the Holy of Holies and the Holy Place and so forth. Everything that the temple had later, the tabernacle in the wilderness had. And then when the Jews invaded um, Canaan, that tabernacle was uh, established in uh, different places. in different places. For for a time, it uh, functioned at Shiloh until the Philistines defeated Israel in a battle. Uh, and apparently they got the tabernacle away from there before the battle because uh, the Lord was then served in the high place uh, on Gibeon. So Samuel served in the tabernacle. When he, Samuel was a young boy, he served in the tabernacle uh, at Shiloh. Uh, when Solomon had his famous uh, vision where the Lord asked him, whatever you want, uh, I'll give you, uh, that was at the tabernacle on Gibeon. That was at a high place. So Solomon is the one who built the temple. And the tabernacle of the wilderness had various locations before the Lord established a particular center for his uh, name uh, in the promised land, which as, as we know, uh, eventually landed in Jerusalem. Now, uh, when Solomon built the temple in Jerusalem, he built the temple on Mount Moriah. Uh, and this is significant because centuries before, when Abraham was uh, uh, required by God to sacrifice his son Isaac, uh, it says that Abraham traveled for three days and he traveled to the region of Moriah. So where the temple was in Jerusalem, Abraham took Isaac and he took him up on the mountain and he, and he uh, began to sacrifice him there. And God intervened at the last minute and says, now I know you're not going to withhold your son from me. Um, well, that was uh, in the region of Moriah, which is where the temple was built years later. Now, all that's very interesting, you say, but what does this have to do with uh, the book From Silence to Song by Peter Lightheart? Well, in, uh, in the reign of David, prior to the construction of the temple, when David brings the Ark of the Covenant back to, um, back to, to Israel after the Philistines had had it, um, he, he brings the Ark of the Covenant back and he builds a tabernacle for that for the ark of the covenant and the tabernacle for the ark of the covenant was built on mount zion so there jerusalem has different mountains that it's on mount moriah is one that's where the temple was mount zion is another place and the tabernacle of david is built on mount zion and it was dedicated with sacrifices but it wasn't a place for uh, it, it was not a place that was dedicated to the offering up of blood sacrifices. So when they established it, they dedicated it with sacrifice. But it was um, it was a musical temple, and that's where Lightheart's um, uh, title comes from: "From Silence to Song." In the tabernacle in the uh, wilderness, there's no record of music being part of the being part of the worship. In and, and David, the great musician, is the one who introduces music 
into the equation. So the tabernacle of David is a place where the sacrifice of praise is offered up. The sacrifice of praise is offered up. And that's where the Ark of the Covenant is. After, later, when the, uh, when the temple is built on Mount Moriah under David's son Solomon, the tabernacle of David is gathered up and its functions transferred to the temple. So, and, and also, interestingly, if you said, if you asked a lot of Christians, what, what mountain was the temple built on in Jerusalem? Many of them would say Zion, because the, uh, the name Zion sort of went with the transfer of the tabernacle of David. So, the worship, the blood sacrifice of, um, of, the, of the older forms of worship in the wilderness and subsequently were transformed into a musical form of worship from silence uh, to song. The, one other interesting quirk, and that is um, uh, Lightheart shows that the tabernacle of David and the ministry of David was very attractive to Gentiles, uh, including one of the men who had responsibility for the Ark of the Covenant, uh, Obed-Edom, his Gentile origins are seen in his, in his name. Um, and centuries later, in the council at Jerusalem, when they're deciding whether or not to um, allow Gentiles to become Christians without becoming Jews first, it's quite striking that James, when he's wrapping up all the arguments, James refers to a prophecy in the book of Amos, where Amos predicted that the tabernacle of David would be rebuilt. And James says that the inclusion of the Gentiles in the New Covenant is the rebuilding of that tabernacle of David. Anyway, this book, for those, uh, for those who love biblical theology, biblical theology that is rooted and grounded in the text, uh, this small book, From Silence to Song, is a treasure trove. It is, it's just a wonderful book. So we come now to our martiology section uh, for episode 96 of the podcast. The word apidutos means unlearned. Apidutos means unlearned, which is how it is rendered in 2 Timothy 2.23. But foolish and unlearned questions avoid, knowing that they do gender strifes. So Paul tells us in 2 Timothy to stay out of stupid arguments, stay out of stupid questions. In Proofrock, T.S. Eliot warns us against quote-unquote tedious arguments. The Apostle Paul was aware of them also. The servant of the Lord must not get dragged into stupid and unprofitable quarrels. Why spend a lot of time and energy and calories and um, brain power on where Cain got his wife? Why, why pursue stupid or foolish and unlearned questions? You've spent a pleasant half hour with podcast proprietor Douglas Wilson. This podcast is produced by Canon Press. Please take a moment to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite listening platform. To hear more from Doug, please visit canonpress.com.